Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. There are so many ways that a trans student can suffer discrimination in the context of schools, bullying and harassment at the hands of not only other students, but by faculty and teachers disrespecting their names or pronouns, access to sex-separated facilities, restrooms and locker rooms, obstacles in trying to change the database records, for example, for um, high school transcripts that they may use to apply to colleges. Just about every facet of school life, transgender students are finding hurdles with respect to whether or not a school district or a university respects transgender students for who they are. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Drew. On this edition of Outcasting, Outcaster Andrew speaks with Paul D. Castillo, who is counsel and students' rights strategist at the South Central Regional Office of Lambda Legal in Dallas. On this edition, Andrew and Paul discuss Title IX, which prohibits discrimination based on sex and education, and how it applies to discrimination against transgender students. Paul joins us from his home in Dallas. This is part one of a two-part series. Paul Castillo, welcome to Outcasting. Hi, thanks for having me. So to get started, what is Title IX? Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, or as we know it, Title IX, is a federal civil rights law that prohibits sex discrimination in schools, colleges, universities that receive money from our federal government. So Title IX is um, from spending clause. So it's essentially a contract between the federal government and educational institutions where the federal government gives money to the schools, which are called recipients, to fund their edu- the education programs and activities, but they must adhere to certain conditions, such as we're not going to discriminate on the basis of sex. Title IX is enforced by the United States Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights. So what kinds of things does it traditionally protect against? Well, the early interpretation of Title IX bears little or nothing to the version of the Title IX as we understand it today. Most of the congressional debate back when Title IX was passed centered around student admissions and access to gender-differentiated vocational problems. But Title IX has been amended by Congress over the years, and in some cases to provide further clarity of the law and in other cases to address decisions by the Supreme Court. Three examples come to mind. For example, sexual harassment was not mentioned in the original statute. It was also unclear whether Title IX in its early days applied to athletics. And it was also unclear until the Supreme Court intervened whether or not individual students or other parties had any sort of private right of action or could go into court to sue on the basis of Title IX. So when and why was Title IX originally enacted? 
To give a little bit of background, Title IX says that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in or be denied the benefits of or subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So with that in mind, um, back in 1964, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act, which uh, were laws that prohibited discrimination based on race, color, national origin, religion, and sex in certain contexts. Two of those sections in the Civil Rights Act help us understand why Title IX was enacted. The first was Title VII, which bars public and private workplace discrimination on the basis of race, color, national origin, religion, and sex. But in Title VII, as uh, originally enacted, Congress excluded educational institutions. The other section is Title VI, which bars discrimination based on race, color, and national origin in education program and activities. So in a sense, Title IX was a gap filler sparked by the women's civil rights movement of the late 1960s and early 1970s. Um, with women facing significant barriers in securing employment, there was a general recognition that the field of education was an area where different treatment had been well documented. And so Title IX was intended to fill that gap so that education could provide uh, women access to jobs and financial security. Was there any controversy around passing Title IX? Well, if we can think back to uh, the women's movement back in the late 60s, early 70s, one of the significant barriers that were that was holding women back in a variety of contexts was due to sex stereotypes. That is, you know, the fact that women were not to be in the workplace, but rather relegated to getting married, having children, being in the home. And so a lot of the laws that were passed um, were an effort to sort of uh, lower those barriers and provide equal opportunity for women. If you've seen the recent movie, Because of Sex, a movie about uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of the opening scenes was Justice Ginsburg, then a student at Harvard University, who was attending a, a dinner party hosted by the the dean of Harvard University. And in that scene, the dean goes around the room and asks each one of the women why she was taking up a place that could have gone to a man. And so those stereotypes about women permeated our society and uh, erected barriers for women. And so Title IX was part of one of many laws to try and eliminate those barriers. So how much legal authority does Title IX have? Well, significant legal authority, um, believe it or not. Uh, there have been cases that have recently percolated through the court involving Title IX specifically. I talked about how sex harassment wasn't originally a part of Title IX, but it took you know litigation in the courts to ensure that both men and women were protected from sexual harassment, even though it wasn't specifically delineated in the statute. And so there have been cases 
throughout the decades interpreting what on the basis of sex means. Now we know it uh, encompasses sexual harassment. Of course, we know that Title IX was used to provide equal opportunity in athletics, uh, particularly for women. And, uh, and we also know that Title IX also covers uh, gender-based stereotypes and discrimination based on gender identity to cover both LGBT students and ensuring that they have full and equal access to educational opportunity. What institutions have to follow Title IX? Any educational institution that receives federal funds from the federal government is bound to follow uh, the rules of Title IX unless they secure a waiver, for example, in the situation of a institution that is religiously owned and affiliated at some exceptions. But generally, any school, college, university, or any education program activity that receives money from the federal government. So then basically the, the consequence for not following it is that then you don't receive federal money. That's right. In fact, the Office for Civil Rights, or OCR, does enforce Title IX, and so they are charged with investigating, and if there is any violation of Title IX, um, rectifying uh, the Title IX violations that uh, a university or a school may commit. But their incentive to following the law uh, of Title IX is that if uh, they are found in violation and they don't comply with the law, uh, the federal funds from the federal government could uh, cease. Before 2016, was Title IX generally interpreted to cover anti-transgender discrimination? Yes, it was. And this is a big misconception across the board of whether uh, Title IX was interpreted to cover anti-trans discrimination. So why is that? How did they sort of make that jump from um, protection of women to protection of trans people? Well, as I mentioned earlier, one of the overriding concerns of Title IX was to eliminate stereotypes. Throughout the years, we had court cases that interpreted, for example, Title VII in the workplace context that also prohibits discrimination based on sex to bar gender stereotyping or stereotypes about what a woman ought to be or what a man ought to be. The courts often look to Title VII when interpreting Title IX. And having worked for the Office of Civil Rights for the U.S. Department of Education, I can say with absolute certainty that OCR has been enforcing um, Title IX to prohibit any sort of discrimination based on gender stereotypes or based on gender identity as far back as taking on investigations in 2011 with a quite robust agreement in one of its first cases back in uh, July of 2013. So far before the Office for Civil Rights, along with the Department of Education, issued its Dear Colleague letter, they were enforcing um, uh, Title IX to prohibit and bar any sort of discrimination against trans students based on their gender identity. So what kinds of discrimination can trans people face in education? 
There are so many ways uh, that a trans student can suffer discrimination in the context of schools, including, for example, bullying and harassment, which is prevalent still to this day. Those students can also suffer um, bullying at the hands of not only other students, but by faculty and teachers, by disrespecting their names or pronouns and refusing to use appropriate names and pronouns in access to sex-separated facilities, for example, restrooms and locker rooms. That is an ongoing issue to which schools across the country, many of which have found um, and incorporated affirming policies for trans students, but um, also at the same time you have schools that while they may respect a student's name and pronoun, they draw the line with, with respect to restroom facilities. There's also any sort of identification documents within records where a trans student can face some obstacles in trying to change the database records, for example, for um, high school transcripts that uh, they may use to apply to colleges or to workplaces as they're applying for jobs. You can see discrimination towards trans students with respect to housing and overnight stays and trips that are affiliated with clubs and sporting activities. So just about every facet of school life, you can find that transgender students are finding in many places hurdles with respect to whether or not a school district or a university respects uh, transgender students for who they are. So can all of these examples be covered by Title IX? Absolutely. Title IX, as we know, covers sex-based stereotypes and with respect to any discrimination because a student is transitioning or simply because uh, they are suffering bullying and harassment uh, in the classroom or outside of the classroom. There is no place that shields a school from preventing this type of discrimination in any of their programs or activities, um, whether that be on-campus or off-campus school-related activities. And how important is it that trans students be protected from this sort of discrimination? It is imperative that schools, colleges, universities, administrators enact, you know, affirming policies for trans students. Uh, there is a prevalence of harassment and bullying that goes on with transgender students. And in fact, uh, in a recent survey, the American Academy of Pediatrics has revealed alarming levels of the well-documented suicide rates among transgender youth, with, for example, roughly half of transgender teens who identify as male but are assigned female uh, gender at birth have attempted suicide, and 42% of adolescents who don't identify uh, exclusively as male or female as having one prior suicide attempt. So these statistics have been well documented that it is important as part of not only getting an adequate and robust education that is afforded to every other student at the school, but also as a matter of survival for 
transgender students to be able to live as their authentic selves on a daily basis. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Andrew is talking with Paul D. Castillo of Lambda Legal on Title IX and anti-transgender discrimination. In 2016, the Obama administration Justice Department issued a Dear Colleague letter telling courts to interpret discrimination on the basis of sex in Title IX to include discrimination based on gender identity. So can you tell us about that policy and what it said? Sure. The Dear Colleague letter of May 13, 2016 was sent out to schools, colleges, and universities as a result of widespread requests from education institutions to who are seeking clarity about how Title IX applied to transgender students and what the existing law already said and how Title IX was going to be enforced. As I mentioned earlier, OCR had already undertaken many investigations with respect to transgender students prior to the Dear Colleague letter. And so what the Dear Colleague letter is, is essentially outlining the responsibility by the school to adhere to the Title IX laws as it applied to transgender students. It was not new. It was not anything that came out in 2016. And so it covered various categories and places within the school where a transgender student could suffer discrimination. So, for example, the Dear Colleague letter set out the requirement that schools provide a safe and non-discriminatory environment uh, that is free from harassment and bullying, even when it includes transgender students. It talked about identification documents, names and pronouns, essentially saying that you must treat students consistent with their gender identity even if their education records or identification documents indicate the sex uh, assigned to them at birth. It also covered sex-segregated activities and facilities, such as restrooms, locker rooms, athletics, um, and a host of other areas, providing that guidance to education institutions that Title IX does apply to transgender students and they must treat transgender students consistent with their gender identity. So does a Dear Colleague letter have legal authority, or is it just sort of telling the educational institutions what's happening without sort of authority behind it? The Dear Colleague letter, um, when it is written, obviously looks to the state of the law as it exists on the day. So it referred to court cases that interpreted statutes um, that bar discrimination on the basis of sex. As I mentioned, Title IX often borrows from the case law of Title VII and the uh, discrimination that bars, among other things, discrimination based on sex in the workplace. So deriving from the, at least at this point, uh, about a decade worth of, uh, of case law, certainly within Title VII, it concluded that at the very minimum, sex-based stereotypes is prohibited, and that would include discrimination based on 
a student's gender identity or trans status. So basically all it did was just inform schools what courts were already doing? That's exactly right. Okay. Uh, and, and there's this big mi- misconception that uh, the Dear Colleague letter was something new when in fact it was not. It was It was simply articulating how the Department of Education had been enforcing and uh, the law and how um, courts were interpreting the law um, up to the date of the letter. So did it have an effect on how schools treated trans students? I think for the most part, the uh, Dear Colleague letter that was issued in 2016 was most welcome by a number of school districts who had already taken steps to try and provide affirming policies and, and for those who were in the process, provide appropriate guidance for them to pass policies that were inclusive of transgender students. Of course, there were several school districts that did not have such affirming policies. And, and so for those individuals who may not have been aware of, for example, a trans student um, in their school or in their school district, uh, certainly parents and uh, school boards that hadn't thought about the issue, this really took them by surprise. And did it have any effect on trans discrimination cases in the courts? I think we saw a lot more cases involving transgender students in the courts. There was clear legal authority uh, that supported trans students for the right to be treated equally at the school. And when schools that did not respect transgender students started making policies or not following this dear colleague letter, it prompted more and more efforts to advocate for affirming policies within their communities and certainly for more lawsuits to be filed in the courts. So basically just by increasing people's understanding of what their rights were? Absolutely. The visibility of this dear colleague letter certainly armed trans students with the clear law as it was being enforced by the Office for Civil Rights and gave them support to try and promote those affirming policies and and certainly uh, be respected at school when they may have not otherwise had the tools to be able to advocate for themselves. What sorts of backlash was there to this policy? There was tremendous backlash um, for the next year. In fact, there were a number of states that filed lawsuits against the Office for Civil Rights based on this dear colleague alone, claiming that the Department of Education had no authority to change what the law was, as they put it. Although, as I said, it had for many years been interpreted to include gender-based stereotypes and be inclusive of trans students. Um, But the backlash certainly had an effect on the Dear Colleague letter itself. After a lawsuit was filed in Texas by a group of states who felt it was their duty to try and push back against the federal government and certainly the policies that were supportive of trans students and trans people in general by the Obama administration, those states ran into court seeking to put a stop to the way that the Department of Education had been enforcing the law. 
and they were successful. There was a, a, a stop, an injunction that was put into place that prevented the Department of Education from taking any action until a new colleague letter was issued under the Trump administration in, in early 2017. So tell us about that new colleague letter from the Trump administration. So because of the injunction that um, was put in place by the district court in Texas, the Trump administration in February of 2017 rescinded that dear colleague letter. And, and what it said essentially was it didn't provide any further guidance about Title IX one way or the other. What it did was essentially create a vacuum or take us back to immediately before that uh, Dear Colleague letter of 2016 was put into place. The Dear Colleague letter said that they've decided to withdraw and rescind the guidance documents in order to further and more completely consider the legal issues involved. But it said nothing about how Title IX was to be interpreted. So what was the reason for this action? Uh, essentially, um, I think it was a uh, it was a big political move for uh, the Trump administration and uh, you know subsequently uh, Secretary DeVos to rescind that letter. Um, so I think there were a lot of politics at play. I think the injunction had a significant effect, but what it didn't do is eliminate the case law or uh, the decisions that preceded the Obama-era Dear Colleague letter, which formed the foundation of how you interpret Title uh, IX. So essentially, while the Dear Colleague letter for transgender students was rescinded, it did nothing to affect the underlying law as it had been interpreted. So do most judges and courts still interpret Title IX as covering anti-trans discrimination? That's right. The overwhelming majority of courts um, in the last two decades have found in favor of barring discrimination based on gender identity or trans status or because of gender stereotypes all fall within Title IX. So while early cases may have seen uh, some losses in it with regard to Title IX. There's certainly now an overwhelming amount of case law that support students like Ash Whitaker or Gavin Graham and other students across the country who have used Title IX in courts to secure their rights. So does the Trump administration have any authority over the decisions of judges or courts? They do not. Um, the cases that have gone forward finding in favor of transgender students cannot be wiped out by the rescission of a guidance document or any sort of pronouncement by the Department of Education. Case law exists throughout the country, certainly stronger in certain areas of the country because of where those lawsuits originated. But to your point, um, any sort of pronouncement or rescission by the federal government does not affect the conclusive effect in some circuits about what Title IX means. That's all the time we have for now, but we'll continue this conversation on the next edition of Outcasting. Paul D. Castillo, thanks for joining us. 
I appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. This has been part one of a two-part series. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Andrew, Alex, Amelie, Dante, Lucas, and me, Drew. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Drew. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.